He was a deeply serious person. He was personally shy. In any historical era other than his own, he wouldn't even have been a good politician. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, The Three Lives of James Madison. Author Noah Feldman says Madison, a founder and America's fourth president, hated asking people to vote for him. He was a deep thinker, says Feldman, and his skills were essential during the birth of a new nation. Ahead, Feldman explains why. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events held by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Though there isn't a famous play about him, founding father James Madison's impact on designing our democracy is immense. Harvard Law professor Noah Feldman says Madison changed the United States three times. He designed the Constitution, led the struggle for its adoption and ratification, and then drafted the Bill of Rights. Feldman says Madison was modest in his personal manner, but not modest in his aspirations. He's the genius who invented modern constitutional thought and the inventor of federalism. If federalism was a new kind of constitutional physics, Madison was its Einstein or its Newton, and he thought so. Feldman's lecture and his new book about Madison don't just celebrate the man. Feldman examines Madison's legacy of slavery and how his efforts to conquer the continent came at the expense of Native Americans. Still, he says, there's a lot to be gained from looking back on Madison's world. Here's Noah Feldman. Madison is the founder whose actual concrete daily views are more significant for actual concrete daily decision-making here in the United States than any other founder. So no musical about James Madison. (laughs) I'm not going to sing and dance. Uh, Nor would James Madison's life uh, be in any way suitable to having a musical, hip-hop or otherwise. He was a deeply serious person. He was personally shy. In any historical era other than his own, he wouldn't even have been a good politician. He hated speaking in front of crowds. He hated asking people to vote for him. He liked to think deeply. He liked to analyze problems in a very rational way. He always ascribed rationality to everybody else in his life, even when they were not rational. But his particular skills were absolutely essential at the moment of founding because of the distinct needs that the Republic had in its early and failing years. In particular, Madison's contemporaries, who were the other founders of the country, were discovering almost every day that the makeshift haphazard institutions that they had put into place after the revolution were failing. And they were failing fast. And as they failed, that generation needed practical solutions that would work. And for that, they didn't need ordinary politicians with the particular skill sets that those politicians have. They needed people who were self-consciously thinking of the problem in terms of centuries. And Madison was that person. And what I'd like to do in the time we have this morning is to go through the three most significant contributions that he made, as it turns out, in three different phases of his life to our present life as a nation. 
and to suggest that in each one of those cases, the story that we're used to imagining is actually very different from the story as it actually occurred. We know there was drama around the question of the Constitutional Convention. It turns out it wasn't exactly the drama that we think. And we know there was drama with regard to the formation of the first political parties. Again, not exactly as we think. And last but not least, somewhere in the recesses of our mind, we think that the War of 1812, which is sometimes called the Second War of Independence, probably meant something, though it's pretty hard to pin down exactly what we think it meant. And it turns out it actually meant a fundamentally new direction to the United States in the world. So that's my game plan, and then I'll open it up and we'll have a conversation, I hope, about Madison and about his legacy. So with your permission, let me dive right in, starting actually with the question of how Madison entered public life in the first place. And it turns out that the answer is, in fact, religious liberty. Madison was a Virginian from the Piedmont, from a very, very well-off family. His father owned upwards of 100 slaves. He went to Princeton University, then called the College of New Jersey, for his studies. And there, he had a rather unusual education for a Virginian of his social class. The normal place to go to college for a well-off Virginian was, probably all of you know this, William and Mary. That's where Jefferson, in fact, had gone. And there, Madison probably would not have had his worldview challenged very much. By contrast, at Princeton, which was a Presbyterian college, Madison was himself a religious dissenter, because he was a member of the Church of England, not a Presbyterian, among dissenters, because the Presbyterians were themselves dissenters. And they cared very deeply about religious liberty, and Madison himself came to care deeply about religious liberty. And when he went back to Virginia after completing his studies in remarkable and rapid fashion, sitting in Virginia, the issue that most gripped his attention was not, in fact, initially the revolution. It was, rather, the religious liberty of local Baptists in Virginia, and remember, he wasn't a Baptist, who were being pushed around by the Church of England. That's the issue that motivated the young Madison, that really got his juices flowing. And only after the revolution and after Virginia decided to write its own constitution did Madison find a place in public life. And he found it, even though he was just 20, in his early 20s, 24 years old or 25 years old, when he was elected to go to the state constitutional convention where Virginia was going to write its own constitution. And as a kid at this convention, he really was a kid. He was half the age of George Mason, who was the lead draftsman of the constitution. He made his first impact in public life by arguing for strengthening the religious liberty provision of the Constitution. And he got it in, and that made him. From then on, he was known as a person who had something to say about constitutions, and that would turn out to be the defining issue in what I think of as his first life in public. And that first life was his life as the genius who invented modern constitutional thought. Now, Madison was modest in his personal manner, to a fault, perhaps, but he was not modest in his aspirations. He thought he was a genius, and he thought his genius lay in solving what he considered the fundamental problem of Republican politics. And that fundamental problem was actually pretty simple. How do you have a government that is a government of the people that neither 
controls the people, doesn't take on its own identity and then force itself on the people, nor at the same time does it allow itself to be dominated by whoever happens at a given moment to be the majority of the people. That latter problem is the problem that we like to think of as the problem of the tyranny of the majority. But that was not a phrase that was well understood or even well used in Madison's day. He thought that there was a unique solution to this that was his distinctive solution. And that solution was to expand the size of the republic so that different factions, and that was the word for parties that disagreed with each other, that formed would ultimately not take over the state, but would interact with each other in a way that balanced the government. And his hope and aspiration when he went into the Philadelphia Convention in 1787 was to enlarge the republic and then give the federal government, and here's the part that may be a bit surprising, the direct power to control what the state legislatures did. He called this a national negative. A negative meaning the right for some entity, probably Congress, although there was some discussion about how it should be arranged, to say about any state law, nope, we don't like it, it's out. Now, I can't emphasize strongly enough that for Madison, this idea of the national negative was the whole ball of wax. He thought that expanding the republic would give us a much better Congress than you would have state legislatures. That was a good idea. He thought the different factions would counterbalance each other in Congress. But he was sure that at the state level, local majorities would still tyrannize over the minorities. The only way to fix that, in his view, was with the national negative. And on that issue, he lost. In the Constitutional Convention, his idea of expanding the republic was a success, and it was adopted. But his idea of enabling this expanded government to control the state legislatures was defeated, and it was defeated not once, not twice, but by my count, on nine separate occasions. He kept on trying to bring it up. And Madison actually left the Constitutional Convention somewhat disappointed, despite the fact that by any objective acknowledgment, he had achieved this extraordinary thing of changing the fundamental structure of government of the United States and of creating what came to be called federalism. It wasn't yet called it then, but it came to be called federalism, namely the idea of balancing government at a central national level with government at state levels. Today, that model of federalism is in use all over the world. It's not just how the US governs itself. It's not just how Canada governs itself. It's how India governs itself. It's how Brazil governs itself. It's operative in South Africa. It's operative at some dimensional level in some parts of Europe, in Germany and elsewhere. And Madison is, in fact, the inventor of this. If federalism was a new kind of constitutional physics, Madison was its Einstein or its Newton. And he thought so. And that sums up the accomplishment of his first political life, his first public life, in which, notably, he believed that he had managed to reduce or maybe eliminate the effect of faction, which means political party. So remarkably, 
when the Constitution was ratified, Madison thought that we would have no political parties in the United States. Think about that for a moment. Can you imagine us with no political parties? Hard to picture. On the other hand, think of our aspiration to nonpartisanship. We're one of the only countries in the world where public officials and ordinary people alike regularly say, if only we didn't have so much intense partisanship. I mean, the Aspen Institute is a great model of this in some sense. Aspen Institute is committed to an ideal of nonpartisanship. That idea is a profoundly Madisonian idea, but specifically, it's the idea of Madison's first political life. It's the aspiration to design a government where reasonable people could talk things over. We might disagree, but we would remain friends. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. For more great listening from the Aspen Institute, check out our podcast, Aspen Insight. Hosts Marcy Krivenin and Zach St. Louis take you through the halls of the Institute. They introduce you to people working to find solutions to the world's most complex challenges. In the latest episode, a cybersecurity expert gives tips on how to be safe online, and a South Carolina doctor is helping reduce preterm birth by connecting expecting mothers. Find the show by searching Aspen Insight in Apple Podcasts. Now back to the three lives of James Madison. Here's Noah Feldman. Madison, in his own personal life, valued friendship above almost anything else. And he thought that reasonable people could differ with each other while remaining friends. And he didn't just talk the talk, he actually walked the walk. And I'll give you just one concrete example. And it involves someone else you may have heard of, James Monroe, who was Madison's closest friend through most of his life. Their relationship had some ups and downs, as I'm about to mention. But for most of their lives, they were closest friends. Well, after the ratification of the Constitution, Patrick Henry, who was the governor of Virginia and who had opposed ratification, convinced James Monroe to run against Madison for Congress in a specially gerrymandered district that was created to benefit Monroe in Virginia. And astonishingly, Monroe, who was a couple of years younger than Madison, agreed to do this. Why is a profound question, and I think I'd have to write a biography of James Monroe to really answer that. But I think the simplest answer is sibling rivalry. They weren't literally brothers, but they were both, in a way, half-sons to Jefferson, not literally, but metaphorically. And when it comes to Jefferson, you have to specify. <clears throat> and I think Monroe really just saw the opportunity <clears throat> to take the next step into his own national prominence. Madison's career would have been over had he lost to Monroe. Henry had blocked him from the Senate. Madison ran for the Senate. Monroe, uh, sorry, and Patrick Henry made sure he lost. So the guy who had just designed the Constitution and wanted to go to Washington and participate in the government would have not been able to participate in the national government at all because his best friend had been induced by his worst political enemy to run against him. Now, I don't know how you would feel under those circumstances. I myself would have been, you know, just a little bit upset. Madison fought the fight with Monroe. It was the deepest winter. It was very cold winter in Virginia. They went all over the state 
essentially barnstorming and speaking in front of public audiences. Madison got frostbite of his nose after one particularly long night when they had to lecture in the snow. And Madison managed to win just barely. And having won, he wrote a letter to Jefferson that is an extraordinary sort of indication of Madison's true character. He said, I have had the misfortune to remember that Jefferson was in France. So M Madison could pretend that Jefferson didn't know that one of his protégés had destroyed, tried to destroy his other protégé. So Madison wrote to Jefferson, I've had the misfortune to run against Colonel Monroe. It has not affected our friendship at all, and we have kept the personal and the political separate. I know our friendship will continue at least on my side. Now, you could say he was being magnanimous in victory, which is true, but he really meant it. And he did restore his friendship with Monroe, and he would go on to do it yet again when Monroe once more ran against him, this time when he ran for president. That's a story for another day. This race embodied Madison's ideal and his aspiration, which was the aspiration to friendship. That is the Madison who then went to Washington and was mugged by reality. And reality came in the form of a man who does deserve to have a hip-hop musical written about him, and that's our friend Alexander Hamilton. Now, Hamilton and Madison had become very close allies in ratification. They had co-authored the Federalist Papers. They had a tremendous influence on each other in their style, in their content. They were writing letters back and forth every day to handle ratification. It was as close a collaboration as you can imagine between two very brilliant and independent-minded people. Once they got to Washington, it became very, very clear to both of them that Hamilton intended to do for the financial structures of the New Republic exactly what Madison had done for the governmental structures. And in short order, Hamilton proposed a permanent national deficit, he called it immortal, a national bank, and government incentives in the form of subsidies that would make the United States into an industrial economy and not an agricultural one. Madison looked at all three of these things, and he said, unconstitutional, unconstitutional, unconstitutional. Madison didn't just think that Hamilton was wrong on the merits. He came to believe that Hamilton was trying to subvert the very structure of a republic. Why? Because as Hamilton very brilliantly and very honestly said in public, his goal was to align the interests of the bond markets with the interests of the government. Because in his view, there was no other way for a modern republic actually to operate. He wanted a government that would borrow money so that there would be an interest group, namely bondholders, who would want the government to raise taxes so it could pay them back, and who would then want the government to issue more debt so that they could continue to trade in the bonds. And he called this a perpetual motion machine. That was his, his phrase. Madison said, this is supposed to be government of the people, not a government of the bondholders. We will be controlled by the bondholders. We will be controlled by the markets. It will destroy the basic structure of republicanism. These two men who had been friends and allies didn't just become enemies, and they did become enemies. They became personal and political enemies, to use Hamilton's phrase. Each founded a newspaper to attack the other. We think we're the first generation in which people get their news from different sources that contradict each other? No. Each founded a political party to go after the other. Each character assassinated the other. 
It wasn't that easy to character assassinate Madison, who really had very little going on in his personal life. He had, had one romance when he was uh, 32 with a girl who was 16. They were engaged to be engaged, and she threw him over. Then nothing until he married Dolly, to whom he was happily married for 46 years. They were only apart for a few weeks in their lives. And um, you know, we know a lot about Abigail Adams' relationship with John Adams, because they chose never to live together. So they wrote long letters, which is super nice, and you know a lot about their relationship. Madison and Dolly were actually never apart. They were apart for about three months in the entirety of their 40-odd uh, year marriage, and they wrote three times a day during that period of time. So they actually seemed to have genuinely loved each other. She played a crucial role in his political life. We see that in the letters, and we see that in uh, practical reality. And the point is that Madison, who was deeply faithful to her, generated no scandal, really, of any kind at all. So Hamilton mostly tries to use, tried to use Jeffersonian scandal to get at uh, Madison, and of that there was plenty to go around. Uh, he even had his newspapers allege that Dolly Madison was having an affair with Jefferson, because when Jefferson eventually became president, there was no first lady, because Jefferson's wife had died, and his romantic relationship at that time was with the mother of his then-children, Sally Hemings, and she was not in Washington, D.C., for uh, reasons that Annette Gordon-Reed uh, makes clear in her very brilliant book. Um, so as a consequence, Dolly Madison actually was effectively the first lady for the eight years of Jefferson's presidency and the eight years of Madison's presidency. So the allegation was a natural one. But the point that I'm making is simply that the character assassination was all out, that the partisanship that was created in that period was every bit as brutal as the partisanship that we experience today in some ways more brutal. And this was all the consequence of the political reality that had come to pass despite Madison's best efforts. So we think the Constitution was this big success, and then the Founding Fathers got along great. Wrong. The Constitution failed with respect to the greatest aspiration that Madison had for it, namely the aspiration to produce a wholly nonpartisan politics. And Madison himself not only knew this, he participated in the birth of American partisanship, and he gave it one of its most characteristic and fascinating features, and it's this. In the partisanship that Madison formed, he had to explain to himself why he was founding a political party, when he thought political parties were terrible. And his answer was that he had to save the republic. Save it from what? From the destruction of the Constitution itself. So Madison began to allege, and this is really Madison's move, not Hamilton's. And I'm happy to talk about why in Q&A, but it's really mostly Madison's move. Madison didn't just say that Hamilton's policies were wrong. He said that Hamilton was trying to create a monarchy in which the Constitution would be done away with. That inaugurated an American practice that is still with us today, where we don't just say that our political opponents are bad or wrong. We say they're trying to break the Constitution. And we have all seen that in the last 10 or 12 years in a very, very clear and explicit way. First, the shoe was on one foot. And Democrats were saying in the Bush administration that George W. Bush was trying to violate the fundamental structures of the Constitution. Then Republicans said it about Barack Obama's presidency. Now Democrats are saying it about Donald Trump's presidency. So my point is not to weigh in on the realities of this. Of course, it's always possible that there are presidents who are trying to break the structures of the Constitution, whether wittingly or unwittingly. The point is that this practice of accusing the other political party 
of being out to break the Constitution was started actually by James Madison, the advocate of nonpartisanship who became a vicious and brutal partisan. Now, by his lights, this partisanship succeeded for Madison because in 1800, running on a platform that he had written, the Republican Party defeated the Federalist Party and Jefferson became president. Now, to be really clear, in Madison's mind and in Jefferson's mind, the outcome of this election was that the Federalist Party would no longer exist. So the famous line of Jefferson's in his inaugural address when he said, we are all Republicans, we are all Federalists, which is always quoted by nonpartisans and bipartisans, didn't mean what we think it means. It meant the opposite. It meant there's no more any Federalist Party, so we don't really need the Republican Party either because our party existed just to put your party out of business, and now everyone will be a Republican forever. And that actually lasted for several presidencies because the Republicans then held the presidency through Jefferson and Madison and Monroe, and depending on how you interpret it, going forward further in the so-called era of good feelings, and the Federalist Party did pass from the stage. So in their minds, they had won. So now I want to turn your attention to the last bit of Madison's political life, his third life, his first life as the inventor of the Constitution, his second life as a partisan, and now his third life is his life as a statesman. He became Jefferson's Secretary of State, and he had eight years as Secretary of State, followed by eight years as President. And in that period of time, Madison turned to doing for the United States globally in the realm of foreign policy what he had tried to do for the United States domestically in the realm of constitution making. I would say that when I sat down to write this book, I knew almost nothing about this 16-year period in Madison's life and even less about the formative way that Madison affected global foreign policy. And I like foreign policy, and I'm interested in it. And yet, this has not been a central part, I think, of our way of understanding Madison. If anything, people like to say about Madison's time as Secretary of State and President, it didn't go very well. They did a bad job trying to negotiate the war between Britain and France, the Napoleonic Wars. And then they had the War of 1812, which also didn't go very well. There's something to that, but it misses the overarching theme that dominated that entire period for Madison, and it misses what I think is the crucial lesson of it. So let me tell you that, and then let's turn this into a conversation. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Today's show features Noah Feldman. He's a professor of law at Harvard. He also served as a senior constitutional advisor to the Coalition Provisional Authority in Iraq and advised the Iraqi Governing Council on the drafting of its interim constitution. He's written eight books. His latest is The Three Lives of James Madison. It was released this month. Back to his discussion at the Aspen Ideas Festival. So what was the crucial idea for Madison? It was this. He had founded a republic. A republic had to be different from an empire. He and his contemporaries understood, with Rome as the clear model in their minds, what happened when you shifted from being a republic to being an empire. You might gain world power, and you lost liberty and self-government. 
How did that happen? Two words, standing army. You could throw a navy. They hated a navy, it turns out, just about as much as they hated a standing army. But standing army is a good stand-in for it. An army of militia, which was not a standing army, was good for self-defense and terrible for invading anybody. Therefore, you should never have anything more than a militia. Because if you had an army, the head of the army would do what? Exactly what the early Roman emperors did, would take over the state, would use military force to dominate it, and would turn us into a globally victorious but domestically unfree nation. It's a nice idea. It has nothing to do with conducting actual foreign policy in a world where other countries have armies and navies. And in the world that Jefferson and Madison walked into in 1800, Britain and France were in the midst of their latest round of what were essentially global wars, because those wars were fought not only throughout Europe, but also were fought in the Americas, not only in North America, but most importantly in the Indies, uh, the Caribbean, where these countries had sugar and tobacco producing colonies. The strategy that Madison wanted was for the United States to trade with both warring powers and make a lot of money while staying completely neutral in their war and allowing its ships to travel everywhere unmolested. This was almost an idée fixe for Madison. The idea was a republic could make money, but the republic would not enter foreign wars. It would not pick sides. Unfortunately for Madison, that's not how Britain saw it, and that's not how France saw it. Each saw that a trading actor like this that was trying to take advantage of trade routes that those two countries could no longer use with each other was not just an irritant, but a national security threat. So each side banned US shipping and felt free to board US ships, take the goods that were there, and in the case of Britain, which had a navy with great manpower needs, impress sailors. That is to say, forcibly take sailors from, the US, uh, from US ships, non-military ships, and make them into uh, British sailors. Now, it's worth mentioning, just for fairness, that a lot of those people were also sailors who had deserted from the Royal Navy and then joined American ships. But they didn't like to talk about that so much in the US. But it was a real phenomenon. It happened a lot. So the question then that faced Madison, the core foreign policy question that faced him for 16 years was, how can the United States affect the behavior of Britain and France by forcing them to open their ports and leave our ships alone? How can that be done without an army or a navy? Right? I mean, in the audience, I see some deep foreign policy thinkers. I see Richard Haas, one of the leading foreign policy thinkers of our, of our age. That's a hard question, I think we would agree, Richard. How can we force world powers to respect us and do what we want when they talk the language of power? They have large armies, large navies. We've got zilch of either, and we won't build them. I mean, you'd have to be the kind of person who thought you'd solve the fundamental problem of domestic politics to think you could be the same person who would solve that problem in international politics. That is to say, you'd have to be a genius who actually got your idea adopted and saw it sort of functioning. And Madison had an answer, 
And his answer was economic sanctions. <clears throat> Madison essentially invented the use of economic sanctions as a tool of foreign policy in the modern era. His idea, which had many twists and turns and many failures and one or two successes, was that the United States could, by refusing to trade or blocking trade that was coming to the United States, shape and affect the interests of Britain and France by playing them off against each other so that ultimately they would allow US shipping. And he reached this conclusion by process of elimination. Can't force them by weapons, can't build a navy, can't build an army, therefore it has to be doable by economic means. This was a foreign policy designed for a republic that would not use force internationally. And so therefore it would use its greatest power, which was the power to trade, namely economic coercion. Now what's fascinating about this is although its failures were very clear, most famously an embargo that the United States put in place at the end of Jefferson's presidency, which did place enormous pressure on Britain, but not fast enough to avoid the cost to the domestic economy of refusing to ship any goods abroad, famous failure. Nevertheless, this strategy almost succeeded in forcing Britain and France to open trade and in June of 1812, late June of 1812, actually almost exactly the same date of June that we're in now, Britain actually retracted its orders to its ships to continue to block US ships from trading and to seize US ships. At the same time, Napoleon had also promised to do the same. And remarkably, had we had modern communications, Madison's approach would have gone down historically as admittedly not the easiest way to achieve its goals, but as an extraordinary foreign policy accomplishment of changing international the international world order without firing a shot. The problem was that Madison didn't know it. And he wouldn't know it for almost three months, which is the time it took for word to travel across the Atlantic. And on the same date, in June of 1812, that the British lifted its orders in council, and Napoleon had announced, having announced a couple of days before that he was also opening shipping, the US had declared war on Britain, beginning the War of 1812. That war reflected Madison's gradual recognition that economic sanctions only worked if you also added the threat of force, and indeed the willingness to exercise force. And this came very slowly and painfully to Madison. He learned in foreign policy the way he had learned in domestic policy, by trial and error. And war turned out to be the same, because having declared war on Britain, Madison discovered that the constitution he had designed to make offensive war ineffective was really good. It made offensive war essentially impossible. The War of 1812 plan was really simple. Invade Canada. That was it, that was the whole plan. Invading Canada was supposed to bring the British to their knees because the British needed supplies from Canada in order to supply their colonies in the West Indies. Without those Canadian supplies, went the argument, the colonies would collapse, and so the British would give in. It's a good plan, and had Madison successfully invaded Canada, it probably would have worked. The problem was the militia that Madison sent over the border were really good at defending their own homes and really bad at invading any place. 
They had no training. They had no motives. And often, they literally stopped at the border. Just above Niagara Falls, where 3,000 New York militia were supposed to cross the border to start the invasion, the militia just stopped at the border and said, we're not crossing. They even had a constitutional argument claiming that the militia could only be deployed defensively. Madison was outraged. How could they say such a thing? How could they use his own constitution against him? Well, they did. And then the war turned. And it turned not only because Madison twice failed to invade Canada, but it also turned because Napoleon unsuccessfully tried to invade Russia. That turned the tide of the Napoleonic Wars. And Britain, which had been rather occupied fighting a war in Europe, suddenly had troops freed up to go and invade the United States. And so the real disaster of the War of 1812, namely the burning of Washington, very dramatic moment, low moment in Madison's life, low moment in his presidency, was a product of not only our failure to invade Canada, but of our failure to take on board that the war in Europe might actually shift in Britain's favor. So how did the United States get out of it alive, and how did Madison end up as a hero and not a goat? The answer there is that the militia were good in self-defense. And when the War of 1812 shifted from being a war of invasion by the United States, which failed miserably, to a war of defense against a British invader, it actually went pretty well. Because only a few days after Washington was burned, militia successfully defended Baltimore in the famous battle that Francis Scott Key witnessed from a British ship in the harbor. That convinced the British, alongside another failed invasion in upstate New York, in Poughkeepsie of all places. I bet you didn't know there was an important battle in US history in Poughkeepsie, but there was. I didn't know that. Um, the British ultimately decided to give up on the invasion. And the man who did that, fascinatingly enough, was the Duke of Wellington, who was asked by the government to go and take over the invasion of North America. And he said, no point in it. Unless we can control the Great Lakes, we won't successfully invade. And so I think you should just cut a peace deal. And so the government did, which is the reason actually that Wellington was then in Europe when Waterloo happened and not in Poughkeepsie invading the United States. The upshot of this is that Madison left his presidency extraordinarily popular because US shipping had been restored. The US had survived the war. And the ideals of republicanism seemed to have triumphed. And he left office more popular than any of his predecessors. There's a wonderful letter from John Adams to Thomas Jefferson saying, you know, they made a lot of mistakes in this administration, and I never much liked Madison. But if you look at his accomplishments compared to mine, yours, and Washington's, he gained more glory for the nation and achieved more than the rest of us put together. This is John Adams who was, you know, liked himself. <laughs> and that was the judgment of the age. Madison was seen as someone who had achieved extraordinary permanent accomplishments. So our legacy today is that our country is in many ways much more Madisonian than it is Jeffersonian or Washingtonian or even Hamiltonian. Our structures of government are in many ways still Madisonian. Our aspirations to be both, our contradictory aspirations to be both nonpartisan and partisan are very Madisonian. Our idea that the way we influence the world is not by military force, but by other forms of coercion, though very rarely true, is itself a Madisonian aspiration. Our occasional confusion about what kind of a world power we are 
I have to admit it, is also a little bit Madisonian. We aspire to be one thing, but then often we're another. And that's, to me, why Madison remains so essentially important today, because his legacy matters so much for us. So as promised, no song and dance, no rapping, but a reality of a world in which we live, in which there's a lot to be gained from thinking back to Madison's world. Our politics are different. Our morality is different. Madison's legacy includes a legacy of slavery that he grappled with his entire life without properly resolving. He did not free his slaves in his will, mostly because he couldn't afford to, but also because his support was for the American Colonization Society's Liberia scheme, where freed African Americans would be offered incentives to return to Africa. Madison believed in this his entire life, even though every time he would bring it up with his own slaves, whom he'd known his whole life, they told him it was crazy. Huge problem in Madison's worldview. Madison's contradictions on race are profound, and I would be very happy to talk more about them, and in the book I talk about them at very great length. His constitution, which did so much for us, also embedded in it the three-fifths compromise, the fugitive slave clause, and a set of governmental structures that in some important ways led to the Civil War. My book is in no sense, and I wouldn't want this talk to be, a pure celebration of Madison. Not at all. His long-term career goal of conquering the entire continent, which he made great strides towards in his career, came necessarily at the expense of Native Americans. He knew that, and he got it, and he was on board with it. So this is a person of the 18th century and the 19th century. It's not someone whose politics and values are identical to ours by any stretch of the imagination. At the same time, this is also someone who is deeply committed to religious liberty, profoundly committed to the Bill of Rights, which he wrote, profoundly committed to the ideals of a republic that respects individual rights. So thank you for listening. And I'm very eager to have some conversation with you in the time that we have. Noah Feldman's book is The Three Lives of James Madison. Ahead, he takes questions from the audience. If you like today's show, check out The Curse of Bigness. Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis was the greatest critic of big business and big government since Thomas Jefferson. Journalist Jeffrey Goldberg and National Constitution Center President Jeffrey Rosen talk about Brandeis's relevance in today's political climate. Find the episode by searching Aspen Ideas To Go in Apple Podcasts, or find the link in our show notes. Here's the rest of today's show. Noah Feldman takes a question from the crowd. Yes, please. The issue of constitution uh, comes up quite often today. How do you think Madison will weigh in today on the issue of uh, the constitution being originalist or adoptive to contemporary standards? Thank you very much for asking about that. It's, a, it's an important theme in my book, although you never quite know. I'm a constitutional law professor. That's what I do for a living. And you never quite know if you want to make people talk about the meaning of the constitution first thing in the morning. The short answer is that Madison was on both sides of this question. When it was convenient for him, especially earlier in his political life, 
he would say, look, we were there. We know what the Constitution meant. And he used this particularly in his first major battle with Hamilton over the National Bank. The Constitution, as you know, gave a whole list of things that Congress could do. Incorporate a National Bank was not one of them. And Madison said, look, I know and we all know we were there. We worked on the Constitution. We ratified the Constitution together. If we were going to have a National Bank, we would have put it in there. And we didn't put it in there. And that made Madison into a kind of what was called then strict constructionist, based in part on the argument that he knew. But Madison shifted his views on this as his career went, because he believed the Constitution had to evolve. And again, the National Bank turns out to be a great example. While he was president, the original charter of the National Bank, which was a 20-year charter, lapsed. He allowed his Secretary of the Treasury, Albert Gallatin, to lobby for legislation that would recharter it. And eventually, in one of his final acts in office, he signed the legislation rechartering the Bank of the United States. And in the course of that process, he explained why. And he said openly in a letter to Congress, I thought this was unconstitutional when we started. And by implication, he knew it was because he was there. But he said, it's been in place for 20 years. It's been supported and approved by politicians of all political parties. The people have embraced it and adopted it. So now, it's constitutional. Now, to my mind, that's a direct refutation of originalism as it's presently understood. Originalism as it's presently understood says, it doesn't matter if the constitutional structure has evolved. It doesn't matter if it's developed. What happened in the, in the writing in 1787 and the ratification in 88, 89 is definitive for its meaning and cannot evolve. The Constitution cannot be alive. We can't have a living Constitution. Madison's insight was that if we don't have a living Constitution, we have the alternative to that, which is a dead one. He explicitly was recognizing that the meaning of the Constitution could change away from what he himself, as a framer, knew it had meant at the moment of the framing. So to my mind, he was, by the end of his life, pretty fundamentally not an originalist with respect to core constitutional values. That doesn't mean he'd given up his hopes for a narrow constitutional interpretation. It's that he believed that the thing could evolve and had to evolve under certain circumstances. To me, that's a pretty sensible view. Uh, yes, please. Uh, you had said that Madison failed to get his uh, veto power over state legislation. But isn't the supremacy clause a form of that? So great, great question. And I really appreciate your asking it. And it will enable me to tie up a, a loose end from my talk, namely the loose end of his failure there. So the supremacy clause says that the Constitution of the United States is the supreme law of the land. Anything in any state law or constitution to the contrary, notwithstanding. Okay? And it says that state judges have to enforce that. But it doesn't say anywhere in it, in the Supremacy Clause, that there is any prohibition from the federal level on states enacting all kinds of laws that might themselves be different from the laws that the federal government is allowed to enact under the Constitution. So take the freedom of speech. Okay? The First Amendment says, Congress shall enact, shall, may not enact a law that violates the freedom of speech. Congress shall make no law violating the freedom of speech, abridging the freedom of speech. 
Congress shall make no law. It doesn't say anything about the state legislatures. Why is that? Because at the time of the founding, no one believed that the Constitution prohibited the states from banning the freedom of speech. They could do it. So the Supremacy Clause didn't block the states from violating the Constitution in that sense, because they weren't violating the Constitution, because the Constitution didn't say they couldn't do so. It was only the 14th Amendment, enacted after the Civil War, that incorporated by reference the rights in the Bill of Rights against the states, thereby blocking the states from, say, violating the First Amendment. Then the Supremacy Clause came to have a new meaning. Now the Supremacy Clause meant that if the states violate fundamental rights, that violates the federal constitution. See the shift. What the 14th Amendment did is it enacted Madison's desired national veto. So let me say a word more about why Madison thought there needed to be a national veto or national negative. He believed that otherwise there would be a fundamental contradiction in the government about who was ultimately in charge. Who was really in charge when push came to shove? The states or the federal government? He thought that the Constitution as drafted failed to resolve that. And he thought that would lead to trouble. And he was right, because it led to the Civil War. Right? Ultimately, the fight at the time of the Civil War, of course, slavery was the motivating factor, but the constitutional fight was, can the states secede? The state said, yes, we can. Doesn't say we can't in the Constitution. The federal government said, no, you can't. Did the Constitution genuinely resolve that? No, it didn't genuinely resolve that. So it had to be resolved by force of arms. That was exactly the kind of conflict that Madison foresaw. There was no clear sense of who was the ultimate sovereign. Was it the states or was it the federal government? After the Civil War, the Constitution was changed so that we would know who was ultimately in charge. Ultimately, it's the Constitution that's in charge, and the Constitution is embodied in a federal authority, specifically the Supreme Court. As a result, the modern Supreme Court, starting in the 1890s and through the present, has taken for itself the job of overturning state laws that violate the Constitution. That's now a big part of the Supreme Court's business. Sometimes it's done that in a libertarian way, to the misery of liberals. Sometimes it's done it in a liberal way, to the misery of conservatives. Over the last century and a half, both sides have equally come to say, judicial restraint, we love judicial restraint, and the other side would say, no, we like judicial activism. And at other times, the rules are exactly flipped. Either way, this results from the idea that the Supreme Court is now the institution that exercises Madison's national negative that he wanted. Madison wanted Congress to do it, although he was open to the Supreme Court participating, because he believed you couldn't run the country without it. He was right. So now we do run the country with it, and we give that job to the Supreme Court. We don't always like it. It's got a lot of imperfections in it as a structure. But he thought that it was necessary to the design. And I think he was right. He was ultimately correct about that. That's yet another way in which the system is Madisonian, even though the specific national negative that he asked for didn't take place. It eventually came to pass. I, hope that was, I know that was a complicated answer, but I, I hope it was a clear one. Um, yes, please, in the, over here. Good morning. Uh, to what extent did Dolly Madison influence uh, James Madison's um, ideas about how women fit in the republic? That's a great question. So the first thing I would say is that you know, Dolly's influence 
in the Republic was profound. And it was mostly in the, as a result of the fact that the Capitol moved to Washington, D.C. just before the time that she entered public life, first as the spouse of the Secretary of State when there was no First Lady, and then as First Lady. So that really, essentially, her 16 years as the most important female figure in the United States, they sometimes called her the Presidentess. It was a word that they used at the time. Um, she was also sometimes called the Queen of America. Um, corresponded to the creation of a new kind of Republican diplomacy and politics, which in an important cultural way extended beyond just voting for people and what happened in the halls of Congress. As we know, what's important in government is generally far more what happens outside the halls of Congress than what happens inside. And she was central in the process of shaping that entire set of cultural beliefs, attitudes, and norms. Everything she did was designed to advance a political agenda. When Madison was being partisan, she pushed the partisanship line hard. When he was being bipartisan, she pushed the bipartisanship line hard. She was much more skilled politically in these dimensions than he was. And she had a much richer network of political contacts in the city than he did. She knew literally everybody. Everybody wanted to spend time with her. No one particularly wanted to spend time with Madison. He was a pleasant fellow. But you know, dinner at his house was primarily fun because of Dolly. So the standard, and I think the correct account of her influence, runs mostly in that direction. Now, your question is concretely on the question of women's rights and authority and capacity to influence. And there I would say, in the interest of honesty, that she did not have a big influence on Madison in that regard, because he himself, and I think she also, adhered to an early, late 18th, early 19th century view in which women's political participation came not through elective office or a public formal role. Well, I'm sorry, her role was public and formal, but through an elected role, but rather through the role, which I would not call a domestic role, I don't think that's the right word for it either, but the sphere of the social and the cultural, which are themselves political. She was not an advocate for women's rights in the modern sense of the term, uh, nor would I describe her as a feminist in the modern political sense of the term. She did, however, have an enormous influence in the way politics operated and was run. And she was an independent actor at many, many points uh, in their joint political careers in that regard. But I would put um, her attitude towards the role of women and Madison's very much in the context of their times. I think it's interesting to contrast that with the question of slavery. There, there were already a wide range of views prevalent in Madison's era. In the North, there were people who were overtly abolitionists. Among Southern slaveholders, there were roughly speaking two views. One, Jefferson's view that ascribed racial superiority to white people and thought that slavery could arguably be justified on those grounds. And another, Madison's. Madison rejected Jefferson's idea. He did not believe that African Americans uh, or people of African descent were racially inferior. In fact, in a letter to his father about one of his own slaves, whose name was Billy, Madison explained that he was living in Philadelphia at the time, and he was, he was um, about to return to Montpelier, to the plantation, that he was not going to bring Billy back with him because Billy wanted to be free, having lived in free Philadelphia. And Madison wrote to his father, I don't want to sell him, sell Billy to, say, the Caribbean, simply, and this is Madison's words, for seeking, 
the fundamental human liberty that we all sought in the revolution. So there Madison is actually saying that he considers Billy's human aspiration to be free, his human right to be free, to be just as valid as Madison's own. At the same time, in the same letter, Madison tells his father, so I'm not going to sell Billy, but I am going to put him into indentured servitude at the end of which he'll become free because I need the money. Okay? I want to get some value for him. And I think this perfectly captures the deep and fundamental contradiction in Madison's view of people of African descent and of slaves. On the one hand, he got that racial equality was a reality. He got that the human aspiration to liberty was universal. But he refused to allow that knowledge to affect his own judgment in his life. He owned human beings. And he continued to own human beings. Now, you can ask yourself, and I think it's kind of an interesting question, which is worse? Is it worse to own slaves, believing them to be your inferiors? Or is it worse to own slaves, believing them to be your equals? I'm not sure there's some simple answer to that question. They're both extremely bad in extremely different ways. So this is not meant as a defense of Madison or a condemnation of Jefferson. It's meant as an, an attempt to give you an accurate account of how we each thought about this problem. They knew that slavery was wrong, and they perpetuated slavery in the Constitution and in their lives. I don't think they knew in their minds that structures of male domination that we would today absolutely identify as the most profound forms of sexism was wrong. Their consciousness had not been raised on that question. So that may make them even worse with respect to their relationships to women than it did with respect, with respect to their relationships to African Americans. That's, again, a profound you know, moral question. Um, but yeah, Madison was not woke on that question. Not, not, even, not even close. We're out of time. Okay. Thank you. Noah Feldman's latest book, The Three Lives of James Madison, is in bookstores this month. He spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. The Aspen Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.